Good morning. Good morning, happy young people. Good morning, happy not so young people. I wanted to talk about a way that I practice um, breathing lately. It's a funny thing because you don't have to practice breathing, right? This breathing is just going to happen anyway. It, your breath breathes itself. <clears throat> but when we say practice breathing, what we mean is that we can bring our awareness to our breathing. So we practice to be aware of our breathing. And sometimes we talk about it like following, following breathing. Like maybe we're going to follow a squirrel as it hopped around under the trees out there. It goes here, and so you behind it there. It goes over there, you follow behind it. You follow what happens in your breathing with your awareness. So when the breath comes in, you follow it with your awareness. It might mean you uh, feel it. You can breathe in your nose. You can feel it right there in your nose. You feel the air moving in your nose. So you can follow your breathing by feeling your breath as the air moves through your nose. You might feel it in your throat or your chest as your lungs puff up and fill up with air. And so you go there with your awareness to feel the breath come in that way. And the same when it goes out, right? You can feel the movement, the sensation in your body as the breath goes out and maybe on your nose too or maybe it's in your mouth. You breathe out your mouth. I was watching a bird fly when I was walking to the hall just now. And I thought, oh, how sensitive a bird must be to the air. Right? Sometimes I can be moving through the air and I don't even know there's air there. Right? I'm not very sensitive to it. I don't bring awareness to that. But there's something there. The air. Clearly, because when a bird spreads its wings, right? It meets the air. It interacts with the air. It f- flies right through the air. So it's there. So I was bringing my awareness to the air like that. Bring your awareness to the air as it moves into your body, as it moves out of your body. It's pretty neat. Because you can look closer and closer and closer. So I did a little research. And I discovered that I wasn't the only one who was breathing. (laughs) Actually, I discovered lots of different beings breathe. And one of the kinds of beings that breathes like we breathe are the plants. Do you know that plants breathe too? They respire. Breathe. 
So the air goes in and out of them too. And very much like us, something happens when the air comes in. So you know when you breathe in, the air that comes in, and this is really hard to pay attention to, you have to be super precise and concentrated. (laughs) I can't even do it. To be aware of how when you take the air into your body, the air that comes in and the air that goes out are different. Because part of the air stays in your body when you breathe it in. And then you release the other parts that don't stay, that you don't need. The part that stays in we call oxygen. Oxygen, right? So you breathe in the air and the air has lots of things in it and in it is oxygen. When you breathe it in, the oxygen, some of it stays in your body. It goes right into your blood. See if you can find that right now. Breathe in. And breathe out. Notice the air coming in and the air going out are different. You may not be able to feel that difference, but it's there. It can be measured. So you breathe in and the oxygen comes into your blood. So now the air has become part of you or part of the air has become part of you. Right? And you give back the rest. And plants do the same thing, almost exactly. They bring in the air. It moves into little uh, spaces in them. It moves in and they take some oxygen and then they give back the rest. But plants do something else, which we don't do. And that's called photosynthesis. And it's where they combine their breathing with their drinking of water and their receiving of the light of the sun. And they put all three of them together to generate sugars, energy for their bodies. So when the sun is shining on a plant, its breathing is different than when the sun isn't shining on it. For us, I think we breathe the same whether the sun is shining on us or not. But the plant breathes differently. And one of the changes, the differences is that when the plant takes in the air and the sun is shining on it, it actually doesn't take in as much oxygen. Instead, it takes in something called carbon. It takes in carbon dioxide, carbon, into itself to help fabricate, make those sugars so that it has something, some energy to grow, right? And when it does that, it releases back more of the oxygen because it's getting the carbon dioxide it needs. It's not doing, taking the oxygen in so much, it gives back the oxygen, We need that oxygen to breathe, to have oxygen in our blood. We need the trees to have their photosynthesis. So it's kind of like this. You have the leaf of the tree. 
and the sunshine comes down and it touches and warms the surface of the leaf, right? And the air is moving in on the other side of the leaf into these little lungs that it has called stomata. It moves in and as the air moves in and the light comes together with the water coming in from the roots of the tree, together in the leaf, they generate that sugar. And then the, the, the leaf so happily just exhales its oxygen, which it's not interested in keeping in that moment. Oh, you have a question. Um, isn't it called you could call it glucose. <laughs> I'm just going to call it sugar or energy. There's actually various names for what happens in there that are very complicated, but that wasn't the focus of today's talk. (laughs) But what's so wonderful about that process is that when the tree is breathing in the sunlight, it offers back into the air more oxygen, right, than it takes. So it's, it's giving oxygen into the air. So I like to think about that while I'm breathing because it's, a, it's, it's like two hands that fit together perfectly, right? When I'm breathing in, I need oxygen. And when the tree is breathing out in the sunlight, it gives oxygen, And so each day when I'm breathing in and out and nourishing myself with my breathing, and all of us are doing that, we're breathing with the forest, with all green things around the planet. It's so wonderful. So I'd like to invite you to close your eyes for a moment and practice being aware of your breathing like we did a few minutes ago. Feel the air moving in through your nose, into your lungs, Feel the air moving out. But now imagine that you're breathing in the out-breath of the forest. And you're breathing out the in-breath of the forest. As you breathe in, you take in the life of the forest. As you breathe out, you offer life to the forest. Breathe like that for a moment. And feel the deep connection that you have with this beautiful blanket of green that wraps itself around our planet. Hmm. So a week ago, I was in New York City. And New York City is a place that doesn't have a whole lot of trees. They have trees, have some really big, beautiful trees, but not a whole lot of them. If you're from this part of the world, you've got all these forested hills. If you live where I live in New Hampshire, there's a forest around you all the time. But in New York City, there's a lot of concrete and steel And I was practicing to do this kind of meditation stuff 
with a group of people on the 20th floor of a church steeple. A huge church in the middle of the city. And we were way up there. And I couldn't see anything green. I could see the blue sky. But I couldn't see anything green. And I was still scared to look out the window. <laughs> it was very, very high up there. And the wind was blowing. And the bells are ringing. And so I was up there and up in the air trying to feel connected but feeling a little wobbly. And so I practiced to breathe like we just did. I said, I'm going to breathe with the forest. Because the forest is giving oxygen into the atmosphere all the time, all over the planet. And whenever the sun is shining, that oxygen is being produced. So the air is full of the life of the forest. So I will bring the forest into me right now. And I practiced to breathe in and out. And I felt so connected to the forest, which is really my home. I love to be in the trees. And I felt that sense of, I am a part of life. I'm a part of something wonderful that's happening on this planet. And I felt it just by breathing. It was so lovely. Usually when we think about breathing, we're thinking about ourselves. It's like, it's my breath, it's my blood that I'm bringing oxygen into. But when you breathe with this awareness of breathing with the forest, suddenly you're breathing the breath of life, the breath of the planet. And that's a wonderful thing to do. It makes me feel happy. It makes me feel safe. I feel at home on this earth. Right? There will be many times in your life where you suddenly realize you're not feeling happy and you're not feeling safe. You don't feel at home. But you can always breathe in and out to connect with that forest of life that is all around you and help you to find a calm, help you to find your peacefulness, your, to feel as though you are a part of something very special, this moment of life. In every breath we share that with the forest. You can have fun too. If you want to do a research project, I can give you one, like I did on the leaves of the trees. You can do one on something a little more interesting. Slimy, stinky algae on the edge of the pond and the puddle, the wetland. Because the algae does something special too. So the next year, you can tell me what algae does. <laughs> Thank you, dear children, for being here. Please practice to breathe with the forest all weekend long. Hope you can feel solid and free and connected to life. Ha, 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 ha.
Thank you, young friends. Have fun this morning. There's space up here with Corey if anybody wants to come in and sit on a mat. Listen to the sound of the bell. We practice breathing with the forest while we hear the bell. Good morning, dear friends. One of the reasons I like that exercise of breathing so much is because it's so full. It has everything in it for me in, in terms of uh, my practice. So you could take, for example, the, the model of a human being, the image of a human being that's offered in the teachings on mindfulness, where you have these different layers of experience. You have the layer of your experience, which is your physical body, right? 
And that experience is very much a part of the conscious breathing. Right? Where we're bringing our awareness into our bodies. We're experiencing this hardened, coarse, formed, shaped part of us, which is, seems to be definite. Right? But we know it's always changing. But it's, it's very well formed compared to, and manifested compared to other parts of us, which are a little softer. So we're bringing our awareness into our bodies when we practice breathing. We're also feeling in that. We're sensing. Um, and in, in the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness, what we call feeling, it, I think it helps sometimes to think about it as a sensation. Um, because our modern way of speaking about things, we use the word feeling for lots of different stuff. I feel like this, I feel like that, right? I, f I feel well, I don't feel well, I feel happy, I feel sad. Or we sometimes even say, I feel like you're not telling the truth, <laughs> right? Which is more of an opinion, <laughs> but we feel that opinion, and we want to emphasize that, right? But in this sense of this practice, feeling is sensation. It's sensing, feeling, through our senses, what's happening, right? And we bring our awareness towards that sensing that we're doing through what we see, through what we hear, through what we smell, taste, and through what we touch, right? We are sensing. And we bring our awareness into that layer of our being, and it gives us this sense in general of whether things are going well or not. And we call that pleasant or unpleasant. A sensation which is more or less pleasant or more or less unpleasant. And when it's somewhere in the middle, we can say it's neutral. Right? Mm. That part of our practice is also in our conscious breathing. Where we are feeling, we are sensing the experience of our breath. So on the level of the body, we're there. On the level of our feeling, sensing, we're there. But we're also active in our mind. And that's one of the reasons I like this breathing. We're active in the way that we're using our thinking in that moment. We, we shape a thought. And the thought in that exercise is, I breathe in the out-breath of the plants, right? So that thought, right, brings something into the experience of breathing which isn't there without that thought. That thought isn't a real, it's a beautiful activity. It's an action. It's bringing something into being. That thought of, I breathe in the out-breath of the plant. Right? I breathe out the in-breath of the plant. Those thoughts, right, they, they bring to life something in that experience. Mm. And so we have that third layer of uh, our practice, our thinking and the activity of our mind is engaged. Our body, our feeling, our thinking. And then we also have something else which is very special. That's not just any thought. 
It's a very specific thought, right? And it's brought together with uh, all of these layers of our being are brought together with a, a certain understanding which is conveyed in that thought. And when the Buddha taught about the fourth layer of mindfulness, in a very simple way he said, be mindful of things. Right? Be mindful of things. So your own body and feelings and thoughts are things, but also that invites you to be mindful of others' bodies, feelings, thoughts, other experiences, other moments, interactions, situations, and to bring your awareness there too. So we sometimes say, that teaching is about bringing our awareness to life and to the world and to others, right? Uh, but he also taught very clearly that there's a certain way to bring your mind to the experience of being with others. And that's given in the, the discourse on conscious breathing. And all four breaths that have to do with bringing awareness to things are about looking deeply into their nature and experiencing the freedom that that way of looking gives you. Right? And in this sense of this breathing, we are looking deeply to discover how we share something so intimate and life-giving with the plants around us, our interbeing nature with all things green, right? We, we are bringing, bringing that awareness in to explore our non-separation. Non mm. And so we have in that conscious breathing exercise of breathing with the forest, all these layers of our practice brought together. And it opens us up to a spaciousness and a solidity. Right? We immediately feel something different. We sense, we know, we belong right, to life. For me, my practice is, is kind of like in my daily life and in going through all the work and things that I do, it's, it's, it's an effort on, that I make to practice like that in each moment. Not always to contemplate breathing with the forest, but to, con to, to be able to engage with all of my being like that and to engage the insight and the understanding which I, I know to be most beautiful, most true. <clears throat> to bring all those layers of my being together. So I want to say a little bit more about this understanding. <clears throat> There's an experience that we have and the Buddha used it in those words, bringing our awareness to things, that there, there is something there that we are being mindful of. Right? Let's call this thingness. Right? <laughs> so, I am something, you are something, each one of us is something, 
and the book and the table and the statue and the candle each are things uh, and what we discover by this way of looking <laughs> where we look to see the deep interconnection and th through that connection we experience our interbeing with that thing so this thing inter is with that thing <laughs> like the forest and I inter are in our breathing right so what we begin to experience is that the thing that we call that thing isn't actually just that thing. This is called emptiness. Right? Emptiness. Each of us is empty. Not in the sense that there's a void and there's nothing there, but we are empty of thingness. <laughs> Right? In the sense that myself, I am not separate from the forest. Right? The life of the forest and my life are the same. When I look deeply and I breathe like that, I experience that I am not something separate as a, as a thing, as something. I'm not separate from. I am empty of being a, a separate thing. You can call me Michael, right? but I could be called by many other names too. Do any of them really contain me? No. You could call me the forest because I'm breathing with the forest. But that doesn't necessarily contain me either. Right? So the thing that appears to be there in front of us is made of everything else around it. And when we look with the eyes of interbeing, we look in this way to experience our deep interconnection and through that our interbeing with others, we open ourselves to, to emptiness, to non-separation. And it, it means that when I say when I refer to myself, right, I'm still referring to me as a thing, but I'm not caught in the idea that I am here and I'm separate from the rest of life. Right? I can still refer to myself as Michael, call myself me, have things that are mine, but I'm not caught in that. I'm free because I know that truly my being is made up of all of you and of all of the plants, and all of life around me. And I can't find real separation between me and the rest of life. I'm empty of a separate self-entity. I'm not a separate self-entity. This is an expression that our teacher, Tai, in uh, 2014, brought into a, a new rendering of what was before called the Heart Sutra and is still called the Heart Sutra. But this new rendering is not called the Heart Sutra because it is actually, it's not a translation. It's a rewriting of, of an ancient text. Uh, 
And one of the primary things that's been rewritten in there is that expression that has been brought in of not separate self entity. That each one of us as a thing is not a separate self entity. We are not separated out from the rest of life. In the old versions of it, it would just say, there's no you, no me. Which can be a little confusing because it certainly appears that I'm here and you're there. <laughs> right? So this new language helps us to go a little more subtly and uh, carefully but also clearly into that experience of emptiness. We discover our non-separation from all things and through that we can see that we as a self are not a separate self-entity. That the other is not a separate self-entity. So through the retreat, we're going to reflect a lot on this because it has huge ramifications for how we go about our life and whether or not we suffer. Mm. I'm going to chant something, Mike. So maybe you want to turn that down just a tiny bit because it's going to be pretty loud. <laughs> Sitting here in this moment Protected by the Sangha My happiness is clear and alive What a great fortune To have been born a human To encounter the Dharma To be in harmony with others And to water the mind of love in this beautiful garden of practice. The energies of the Sangha and the mindfulness training Protect and help me not make mistakes Or to be swept along in darkness By unwholesome seeds With kind spiritual friends I am on the path of goodness Illumined by the light of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Ah. Although the seeds of suffering are still in me in the form of afflictions and habit energies. 
Mindfulness is also there, helping me to touch what is most wonderful within and around me, I can still enjoy mindfulness of the six senses. My eyes look peacefully upon the clear blue sky. My ears listen with wonder to the songs of birds. My nose smells the rich scent of sandalwood. My tongue tastes the nectar of the Dharma. My posture is upright, stable, and relaxed. My mind is one with my body. If there were not the world honored one, if there were not the wonderful Dharma, if there were not a harmonious Sangha, I would not be so fortunate to enjoy this Dharma happiness today. Ah. So one of the very interesting things that comes about through practicing looking deeply with eyes of interbeing, touching emptiness, is it brings into question some of the um, self-promotional behaviors that we have. where we take a lot of time in our lives to build up an image of ourselves, an identity, to, to make something out of ourselves and our life. Right? Even sometimes to go beyond that and shape a legacy that will be there for future generations in our name. Right? Yeah. So it, it brings this into question a little bit. Not that this is a bad thing, but just when you become aware that you are not really you. I am not really me. I'm actually made of all of you. Then this self-promotional orientation, it doesn't, it doesn't carry the same weight. Right? Uh, and we may wonder, well, where are we in all of that? Who am I if I'm made of everyone else? and everything else. And sometimes you can take that towards a nihilistic perspective 
But the Buddha was very careful in his teachings to encourage us not to go down that road. That these teachings are here for the purpose of helping us to suffer less, to understand deeply, to find a compassionate path and suffer less. And not about shaping a worldview that figures everything out. Right? So from a certain perspective, the practice of non-separate self of looking deeply with eyes of interbeing. From a certain perspective, this can be very helpful. But there are times when coming home to oneself might be a more appropriate practice. And I just wanted to bring that out. It's very important to remember we are in a dance here. And the music is playing. And we are moving. And we are not grasping onto a set of ideas as absolute truth and doctrine, right? But as a way of looking which helps us to continually deepen our understanding and find compassionate ways forward to alleviate suffering. So what I I find when I practice looking deeply a lot like this, I I find myself a deep sense of happiness, at homeness, being a part of life and and that is wonderful. And that sense of myself as uh, a needy individual lessens the more stability I find in my interbeing. I find myself more available to actually offer my energy in my daily life to help others because I, I have that stability inside, that happiness in me of belonging to life. And so I find that what really makes me is my awareness of what's happening in the moment. Not the various degrees or accomplishments that could be written down and put on my resume. Right? That doesn't make me. Those are just conventional designations for communicating where we're competent and less competent. Right? <laughs> And what really brings that sense of self forward in a beautiful way, we call that in our practice our true self. And that is the sense, this, this awareness in the present moment of the moving in and out of all these conditions that make us up. Each moment that breath is happening not just when you practice to be aware of it, it's actually happening all the time. But when you bring your awareness to it, you touch in that moment your true self that is right here, right now, in a beautiful relationship with all of the planet through your breathing. Your awareness brings you yourself. And that self doesn't need a definition, it doesn't need to be called anything, it doesn't need to be valued, high or low, successful, or a failure. It's just that event, that coming together in that moment. But we know that coming together through our mindfulness practice, our awareness of the present moment. The inner and the outer, and the mixing, the blending of what we would say, inner and outer, our awareness of that shapes in, the, in a moment with great freedom and clarity, who we are. 
and gives us the opportunity to move in any direction with any quality or virtue at any time. There's a constant giving and receiving taking place. And certain elements are going to be more formative than others. right? Certain things that come into us have a larger impact than others. Some things are coming into us in a very diluted dose, so to speak, like from far, far away. We can see our connection with them, but it's not necessarily having the same strong influence that something that's very close to us is having. And our awareness in the present moment can see these things. So I want to talk a little about this moving in and moving out space and how we can begin to understand that. And the Buddha offered a teaching on uh, consumption, on how we consume things. It's pretty graphic and yucky teaching in a way. It has these really strong examples in it, images in it that are quite painful to think about. And, and that's, that's the point, really. It's to get you to take it seriously. Um, but I don't want to use those teachings. I just want to take the general layout that he presented. <coughs> and one of them is edible food. Right? So this is clearly a way in which the world around us is coming in and we are offering back. And we offer back not just in the waste that we produce from eating, uh, but we offer back through the energy that's, that that food is transformed into, right? Comes out again in the way that we think, speak, and act. And that's an offering back of the food that comes in. So just this morning I was practicing while eating here to be very aware of this coming in, right? This food coming into me and trying to be sensitive to experience really fully what was happening as I brought this food in. Sometimes when we pay attention to our eating, we notice certain trends, certain tracks. Right? Uh, for example, uh, uh, we, we can see that over the last number of days, we haven't had a whole lot of fresh greens or something like that. You know, and you notice how you start to feel differently after four or five days of eating like that than if you have a robust salad every day, right? If you practice mindful eating, you'll notice things like that, right? You won't just be eating information about what you're supposed to have in your, your balanced diet. You'll actually be paying attention to what's happening in your own body. As you consume these foods, what are those effects? You see that because you're mindful, but if we're not mindful in our eating, we don't even know what we ate a few days ago because we weren't paying attention and our memory's not going to be sharp about that. We're not going to be able to draw understanding, right? Uh, I mean, can you, can you say what you ate four days ago? Can you just pull that? Yep, I had this, right? You, it might be hard. You might really have to search for that. But the more you pay attention to the eating that you're doing, literally in the moment, recognizing what you're eating and sensing its effect on you, right? Then that understanding grows. So sometimes you have this general trend, like about eating greens, leafy greens. And I know that's one that I notice a lot for me. Also, um, like eating, eating dairy products. I notice, I notice uh, very extreme 
changes. And nowadays I eat very little dairy because I'm just noticing more and more how it really doesn't help me a lot. I think it actually takes energy away from me, from my life. So you'll notice these things on these general trends and tracks and you can operate on that level. But I noticed this morning some very specific things about very specific foods and in the moment and I was really honing my awareness in. So you'll notice there were some canned peaches that were there and then there was some fresh sliced fruit and I, I, I had some of each on my plate and I was being mindful and I was practicing the same practice with each thing that I ate and that gave me a reference point and that's one of the things that's important about our practice that it's regular that it's rhythmical and that there's a way for us to use it to gauge to have a reference point for what's happening if you sit each day relatively at the same time approximately the same amount of time of your life you can see how you're doing each day because you have a kind of a baseline to measure it from right and the same each bite that I took this morning I was practicing the same thing and I gave those canned peaches just as much a chance <laughs> as I gave the watermelon or not the melon the, the, the melon yeah but the experience was completely different in terms of the energy that I received from that food. It wasn't null. There, there, was, there was a certain life energy available in the canned food, but it was not nearly as pronounced in the fresh one. And I could see that. Why? I could see that because I practiced the same with each one. And I just let it be there, and then I could feel it. It's, it was very clear. The response in my body to those foods was, was very different. Right? Mindful eating. Right? Mindful consuming. You keep going with this, that kind of a practice, and you develop a real deep and dynamic understanding of the different kinds of energy that you need and where they're available and where they're not available and how to balance that. Right? Mindful eating. So the world is coming in, offering you something. And then you have the chance, because of how well that balance is kept and how much energy is available through those foods, to offer it back again. Or to use up all that energy just trying to process the food because it doesn't maintain balance. And then have less energy to offer. Mm. So there's a health, energy, vitality dimension to our eating. And there's also that deep looking dimension. Right? And so as you look into those foods and you understand where they come from and whether or not it nourishes the vitality and well-being of others as well as you. And whether or not it's worth it to sacrifice another's well-being for your own in that instance. And that question right there can lead you very far. So much of what we do in our daily life is about providing basic nurture and sustenance for ourselves and our family, our communities, 
then how we take care of our whole planet becomes the question through mindful eating like that. For that very reason, the Plum Village monastic community eventually, after years and years of considering it, made it policy to live by a vegan diet. Because that deep looking woke up in them an awareness of how important it was to take care of our planet through their eating. And you can have, if you're concerned about climate change, not that you have to become a vegan, right? but that's the reason Plum Village did it. Right? If you're concerned about climate change, look into your eating. Because the way that we eat has a huge impact on climate, especially in terms of uh, the large scale scale production of meats, factory farming. It has more of an impact on climate than the entire transportation industry around the world. All those diesel fumes and coming out of trucks all over the place. Right? The impact of eating meat at the scale that we do and producing it the way that we do now in our modern world, right, is greater, right? It's, it's, it's profound. So seeing things like that and caring for the life of the planet and desiring to um, do all that they can, the Plum Village monastic community said, okay, well, we're really going to move towards a vegan diet. We're going to make that our thing because we want to we try at least to express our understanding and our compassion in the way that we're living. Right? Now, I'm not in this moment trying to tell everybody that you should do that. I'm using that as an example. And for me, it's a, lead, it's a leading example. It's out in front of me. I haven't done that at that level. I've gone in and out of it in my life. But I haven't made that kind of a commitment. And I see it in front of me. And it, so it helps me to keep the question alive. Which is our practice? To stay alive in that moment, to keep our, ourselves alert and engaged and always learning and always growing. Something that else that's been really fun for me around this process of mindful eating is that I've started making my own sauerkraut. <laughs> It's so good. <laughs> and it's so much fun. And that came about by paying attention, right? Paying attention and discovering ways that I could nourish my health and well-being and do it in simple ways and take care of my family too and, and bring, bring about a sort of probiotic health in the gut for all of us. And, and uh, uh, it slows me down also, you know? I get to massage this cabbage, you know, and pack it in and watch that uh, brine come out of it and then sit and let it rest for a while. I've started adding little flavorings now. I'm starting to get gourmet. <laughs> the last batch was, uh, was, a, was a cumin, cumin flavored. 
uh, sauerkraut with green cabbage was really nice. Before that was red cabbage with ginger, fresh ginger in it. They were so delightful. And I had so much fun being a part of that. And I really take the time and do it with my, uh, my children too. Help them participate in literally. You're already digesting the food with your hands when you're making sauerkraut. Yeah. Another layer of the teachings on things coming in and going out, consumption, is sense impressions. We already talked a little bit about that. The sense impressions. And we know, first we know the sensory impressions uh, in the body and, in, and literally in that, that experience of feeling. And then we try to make sense out of the sense impressions. And I, it's, it's important to differentiate there because the way we think about what we're receiving is also a kind of sense. And it also feeds us something. And sometimes it's not the greatest stuff. The way we think about, for example, ourselves, our bodies, our body image, or something we said that we we saw it caused someone else pain we didn't mean to but it did and then inside our mind we're going that was so stupid why did i say that and we're those thoughts that we're processing sensory information right we're trying to make sense out of it and we're making a sense which actually hurts us right and it's important to see these these different spaces where we're active where we're feeding ourselves That's like uh, being able to meet our critical, judgmental, evaluative mind with kindness and really transform it into a kind and thoughtful and patient mind. Right? They're two completely different minds. One takes us down the road of suffering, the other one heals. And, and we have those capacities, either one, in us at any time. Uh, and so bringing our awareness to sense impressions, what's coming in and how we make sense out of it, is a big part of our practice. Uh, Fern and I have been working with this, um, this expression, I'm on your side which is halfway there, right? Because when you go deep, there aren't any sides. <laughs> but it's especially helpful for us as parents because there's a lot of habit energy in us transmitted by our life experiences, transmitted from our ancestors, maybe in their lives. I have no idea what happened in their lives, but somehow I'm acting really strangely. And it's just coming out. And and and. I don't know where it came from, but it's in there. And uh, often there are strong reactions and ideas, just these ideas about what's right and what's wrong, what's acceptable and what's unacceptable for your children. You know, their behavior and, 
and you find yourself coming out strong to, to enforce something that you've never thought about before. It's just coming out and you're supposed to enforce it. <laughs> you know, like, like, uh, like when they talk back to you. Right? And that's fine at a certain level, but when you're really trying to tell them something important and they just throw it right back at you, that's not okay. Right? You're supposed to listen to your parents. What if this were a dangerous situation and I needed to tell you how to stay safe? You're not even going to listen then. You know? And this energy and this rationale just pours out from somewhere inside and wants to clamp down on them. And so this expression, I'm on your side, has been a, little, a guide for us. So instead of trying to battle the habit energies inside of us and the habit energies arising in our relationships with our children, we're trying to align ourselves with the experience that's happening in that moment. And to help our children feel as though we are there with them, for them, right? learning together, growing together with them and for them. Uh, and that's a way that I work with that critical mind, that mind which, which evaluates so strongly whether something's appropriate or not, whether it's acceptable or not. Hmm. I also found that I can work to, to say yes and to say no. Oh, that's a tough one. For me, to say no. But to say it in such a way that you're on the same side. Right? To be able to meet someone who sees things apparently very different from you. No. But to be able to meet them with a no, I'm, I'm not going to go there or we can't go there. But without, you know, pushing against them but help them to see the same thing that you see, to understand things the same way, which actually might mean that you have to shift your understanding some too. Right? Um, but to find that shared understanding of what the best way is to go forward is a kind of no sometimes. It's also a kind of yes. Right? So no becomes yes. No becomes, I can't go that way, but yes, we can find this way. Uh, there's a situation in our community. We have to have a very high level of compatibility at Morning Sun to be able to live close together and work together because we don't have to. We want to. <clears throat> um, so that we have a lot of energy available for the work of growing the community. And we're not always processing our interpersonal stuff. And, uh, which is a, a cycle that a lot of intentional communities get caught in. And um, so we're being very careful to, to build that high level of compatibility. So we, we meet each other slowly over time. Um, it's, it's, very, it's, not, it's not possible for someone just to walk through the door and start living there. We have to, we have to get to know each other first. And sometimes you go through a process of really trying to get to know each other and it's not working. But you're becoming very close. But you're, you're, you're starting to understand that really 
there's going to be some reactivity and some unhappiness which is just going to keep coming up and keep coming up. And that's not our focus right now. So it's not going to serve us as a community. It's not going to serve the vision of the Mindfulness Center. It's not also going to serve the well-being of the individuals involved because they will constantly be triggered into unhappiness. So it's not the best environment. And usually it's us, us as the core community that are becoming aware of that more so than the person who's approaching the community. And so at a certain point, we have to say, no. Even though we've become quite good friends and things are, so many things might be going right, but a few of them are just not going to make it, they're going to make it so it can't work in the way that we'd like it to work. Right? And so we have to go through the process of saying no, uh, offering a no that is a yes in the sense that we help the other person to see it from that lens of what we're really striving to do here as a community, as a project, and the happiness of each person involved. And that's what we really want. Not just like to succeed in some endeavor. We actually want the happiness and well-being of many, including each one of us right here. And so you have to have a very difficult conversation sometimes, but the basis of it is this kind mind rather than a critical one. So making sense out of the situation in such a way, right? That you utilize your patience, your respect, your deep looking, sometimes courage to be able to stand up and say something, right? Uh, but about getting on the same side, like to be able to see things from the same perspective. thing going to fall over. So uh, this is this circle is representing the space that we could call ourselves, uh, and and the space into which we experience the world around us is coming. Right? It's coming into this space, and there's two parts of this: one part which is conscious, and one part which is not conscious. Although we refer to them all as consciousness in Buddhism for some reason. But this top part is about our waking consciousness. It's the place where we are making sense out of what's happening, where we're processing, shaping our, our, shaping our opinions and our... Um, shaping our opinions and our 
views about things. I don't know if that can go over to in any way. Is that going to work? Okay. Well, here, I'm not going to do that much drawing. I can stand here. Um, so that top space, is, this is the, our, our waking daily consciousness. You wake up in the morning and suddenly start to think about the day. That's here. Right? And maybe that alarm clock was beep, beep, beeping into that space and woke you up onto awareness of the day. And maybe you immediately reach over and pick up your phone and start checking your calendar or something like that. And you get very busy in this space. Or maybe you say, oh, time to stretch a little and go have a cup of tea. And you stay calm, but you're in this space. This space down here represents the place of our being where everything else is happening, the stuff we're not aware of. Um, and often this is referred to as store. Many of you know this as alaya consciousness, store consciousness. But it doesn't only store things like your closet, which you put things in the closet, certain order on certain shelves, and the next day they're pretty much there in the same order, unless you have a seven-year-old. And then in your closet it pretty much stays like that. But Alaya consciousness doesn't just store there's actually a lot of activity down there too. It's just the all the parts of us that we're not aware of. And some of these things that are happening down here are, are uh, of a more individual character about us in our life or this moment of our life. And some of the things down there are very old and have to do with many different people, maybe even civilizations, or maybe just a, a trend or an experience of several generations of our ancestors, or the current shaping of collective consciousness in our culture, which you may not be aware of, but we're being shaped by it. This is all alaya consciousness. And so the the purpose of drawing this today is to, is to simply show that um, there's an interaction here. The world around us streams into this space as if it were clouds and rain moving in and touching the soil. Right? Now if there were nothing here, if there were nothing there in any moment, we might bring our awareness to our eyes and sense perception through the eyes. Seeing happens, and it would just happen. And there'd be no way to make any judgment or anything about it. It would just happen. Sound would come in through our ears, and it would just happen. Sound. But we wouldn't even call it sound. So there's no way to, to meet it. Right? And so on. All this input would happen and it would just happen. 
But the reality is there's a whole lot down here that rises up inside of us to meet those experiences, right? Um, Our habit energies, the patterns of behavior we have learned, our parents and ancestors, our society is learning. All of these things are there in store, ready to press up into and affect our waking consciousness. And it's these patterns and habits that we are using to make sense out of sensory input. Right? So we see, we hear, we smell, taste, touch, and all of that comes into our awareness and we see it and then we, we, we use the references of our past experiences and store consciousness and all the possibilities that are here. We use that to make sense of and to respond to that stimulus coming in. So there's a pressing up here. And the image that we like to use is like to see this like a garden, right? And that water of daily life interactivity with others. The rain is happening, touching the soil, and seeds are sprouting. And the seeds is a nice image because it's a potential. Right? A seed is this tiny little thing. It seems to be you know, just dry and almost meaningless. But with the right conditions, right, a giant tree can grow from it. Right? And, and so this, this water of our daily life experience touches Alaya. And these seeds, potentials down here, are touched and they spring up into this space. And they, they take shape in our mind. And then we look out through this lens at the rest of the world. Right? So no longer are we actually seeing what is actually there, hearing what is actually there feeling and touching what is actually there, we are now meeting it with our conditioning, right? Our, our habit energies, our learned and patterned behaviors. This garden of the heart is one that we can become gardeners of by being mindful. So we practice in our daily life to wake up the seed, hopefully the habit energy, of mindfulness, of awareness, and keep it there as much as possible. So like the purpose of having that 15-minute bell every 15 minutes ringing, bing, from your watch or your clock or your phone or your computer or whatever, you know this practice, right? Who, who has this practice happening in their house, on their devices? There's lots of apps now available. <laughs> it's pretty simple to get it. The purpose of that is to keep that potential of mindfulness alive in this space, right? And not just those little bells that come from the apps and the clocks and the phones, but 
any way that you can train yourself to drop out of busyness, like we talked about last night. What's next? What's next? To come back from that what's next busy mind and drop into what's here, right? That is to slow down the reactivity here, calm it down so we can actually perceive what's happening there. That all depends on mindfulness and whether or not we cultivate that seed in us. If we don't cultivate it, it doesn't grow. Well, it might grow. Maybe you have someone who's really sweet, <laughs> lovely, and wise in your life. I do have one of those. I've been lucky. And they, they periodically tap you on the shoulder with this mindfulness <laughs> just to let you know, right? Come back. Come home. And there in the corner, that seat of mindfulness hangs out. So this is very helpful because when a difficult seed is touched in our consciousness, difficult meaning suffering, sadness can be a suffering. When you see a lot of suffering in the world around you, it can make you very sad, right? you see a lot of suffering in the world around you can touch the seed of sadness inside, comes up, manifests here. If you interpret that 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 suffering in the world is caused by injustice and oppression and bad people, then you might get angry, right? And there you see how this information comes in. Certain seeds are touched. And then you think about them. You make more sense out of them. You say, well, because this person did that and said that, that's not okay. right? You just heard some information. But then you told that story. And it wakes up other seeds. So you see how you're consuming not only the sensory impressions of the world, but you're consuming your own thoughts about it. And those thoughts feed other formations down in the store consciousness. So maybe your anger comes up. And you know that your sadness and your anger, this is an experience of suffering when it comes up. We don't feel well. We don't feel good inside when that happens. Sometimes it can really throw things off. And if we let those habit energies dominate our daily life, then that is the energy that we offer back to the world. Right? And, and someone else's heart's garden is going to be receiving that and having to try to make sense out of it or react to it. Right? Mm. Because mindfulness is there when the seed of suffering is touched and sprouts up and cries out in its anguish. Mindfulness gives us the possibility to take care of it. right? To find the conditions that it needs to, to help it to calm down or to heal. So in a difficult moment, a moment when strong emotion comes up.
And you have a little bit of mindfulness there to see that that has happened. Wrap yourself around that strong emotion with your mindfulness. You do that by waking up all the force of it that you have, which is through your breathing, through your calming down of the story of the suffering in your mind, and instead bringing that thought energy, that thinking energy to something more wholesome, like there are seeds of patience in me. There are seeds of great respect in me. There's a seed of understanding and wisdom and non-discrimination in me, and I want to wake that up to help me hold this suffering so that I don't have to explode with it and instead can transform it. We want to establish a relationship with the suffering in us with that patience, with that respect, with that non-discrimination. Because our suffering is a part of us and it's a part of our world. We have grown that together in all of our relationships. And so it's up to us to learn to take care of it, to transform it, just like you would take waste from the kitchen, bring it to the compost pile, and slowly transform it into nutrient to feed new life. So we don't run away from it, we don't suppress it, we take it in our arms and we breathe. Say, I got you now. In the past, I have run from this moment. I've hated this moment. But now, I'm going to try to meet it with my practice. I'm not going to fight back. I'm not going to try to defend my pride. I'm going to build something else. I don't need to take a side. I'm just going to wrap this up in my practice. These are ways I talk to myself when big seed of suffering comes up to help me not just go into reactivity. I know that some of us, we feel like when we're angry and reactive, that's where we're powerful. And it's true, we are. But you have to be also very honest with yourself. What do you do with your anger and your reactivity? What kind of energy comes out of you? What kind of energy touched the seed of suffering in you? probably someone else's anger and reactivity. At a certain point, we have to get off the bus. You just can't keep going around the same route. To press that little tape, ping, put your feet down on the ground. Okay, here I am, and it hurts. The seed of suffering didn't come from out here. So you can't point your finger out there at someone else. The seed of suffering came from the soil of your own consciousness. We turn ourselves away from the energy of blaming others, making others responsible for the mess of the world and for our lives. And instead we bring ourselves home and we say, yes, the situation is messy in these relationships, but primarily I'm suffering because I haven't learned to take care of this space in myself yet. And we do that work of coming home and cultivating that care. Breathing, holding tenderly like a child that seed of suffering in us to help it calm down. And once it's calm, we can bring our deep looking wisdom, our eyes of interbeing to it. Hey, where have you come from? How did this get triggered in me? 
how was this formation built in my consciousness? And as you understand those things more and more deeply, you become free of the reactivity. You are transforming it into compost, into nutrient that can uh, support your growth, your healing. That is also food. Through our practice, we are also feeding store consciousness. We're reshaping the habit energies down here. So the seed of suffering comes up. If we don't take care of it, it grows stronger and it may go back down again. But now it's stronger. Right? The next time it touches, it comes up again. But when the seed of suffering... You guys can't see over there. <laughs> when the seed of suffering comes up and you learn to take care of it, wrap your mindfulness around it. I should draw that. Shouldn't I? Always draw it. Calling on your, calling on your patience. Calling on your respect, your courage, your kindness to help your mindfulness grow. Right? And you wrap itself around that seed of suffering and take care of it. When that happens, the energy of the suffering has been penetrated by the practice of mindfulness, kindness, understanding, and it changes it. So when it goes back down, when it does calm down and it's no longer pressing up, it's gone down with the mark of your practice in it. And the next time that this, the rain comes and touches that seed of suffering, it rises up again, but it carries with it now the mark of your practice. And you practice again to hold it. And that print of the practice goes stronger and stronger. Sometimes, seed of suffering can be transformed in a couple of minutes. Honestly, a couple of minutes of good practice of being with it can change it completely. Sometimes it takes years of coming back to it again and again and again and slowly building up the new patterns in your consciousness, feeding yourself another way of living through that experience. Right? Mm. The third layer uh, of mindful consumption practice that the Buddha offered, he called volition. And a lot of us get hung up on this one. Like We don't quite understand how volition could be consumed. But I think it's important to, to look at that. Because in every moment of our life, we want something. What is it that you want? That's going to take you in a particular direction. You're going somewhere. There's always direction. That's one of the elements of our existence. There's always direction. Right? It's always happening. And volition is that. It's which way are you going? Your aspiration, your desire, your want, your wish, that is going to bring you in a particular direction. And that is a kind of food, right? It's determining for you. Just like you 
bring in a, a piece of food into your mouth and it turns itself into something which affects you, right? Your volition, your direction, your aspiration, your want, right? Is carrying you somewhere. So I think it's really important to look at what our aims are, right? Um, in modern society, you know, a typical aim might be to grow up and get a good education, right? And this is an aim which is collective. A child never has that aim on their own. <laughs> it's transmitted to them by their parents and society. They are, they are told this is the way to happiness, right? And so you're put on a track particular direction is in front of you. Even though you may not be so aware of it, I was one of those. I was not very aware that I was on that track. It was just, that's just how life goes, right? And you just start going. But it's carrying you in a particular direction. And then I bumped into the practice <laughs> and it, I started going a completely different direction. Right? It's important to see what are those aims, those goals that are a part of our life. They will be very active in store consciousness, pressing upon our every moment, making us feel, making us feel whether we are doing well or not. Right? If you have that strong desire to go in a particular direction, but something goes contrary to your desire, right? It's not a very pleasant experience. Many of us grow up with the fairy tale image of like the perfect mate, partner, where you're deeply in love and you deeply love that person and the romance is wild and strong and beautiful. You've been swept off your feet by Mr. or Miss Charming, right? And we, we grow up with this deep desire inside that we don't even know is pushing us so much that we, we must have that in our life. But I tell you, there are many ways to go through your life. You don't have to have that perfect soulmate, romance, whatever, explosive beautiful, powerful relationship. Everybody makes such a big deal out of it. How many movies have been made about the kind of thing? And we're all soaking that in and watering that seed inside of us of the direction that we want to go. And we think underneath that, as volition is very much tied to happiness, we think that happiness lies in the attainment of that goal. But happiness does not lie in the attainment of any goal. Right? It might be pleasant, but that doesn't make you happy, right? Think about all those famous people you knew. They had everything going right, but they committed suicide. What's up with that, right? All that attainment, right, doesn't make you happy. So our volition is, is very important for us to understand what's pushing us inside, what's motivating us, what are those motivating forces and some of them are deep like that, like these tracks about relationship or education, what is success and what's failure, 
and how attached we are to those things. And other ones are smaller. Um, someone asked me once, after I had become a novice monk, I was only for like a few weeks a novice, and they sort of challenged me. They're like, why would you do that? Why, you, why do you become a monk? Right? And I, holding that question was so much fun for me, actually, because I was so invigorated with the path of practice. And the answer was pretty easy. It's like, because I want to practice. And I love the practice. And this is the direction I want to go with my life, is to be able to deepen my understanding and my compassion. That's what I want. So being a monk fits that. Right? And that's, what do you want? <laughs> you know, do you, you know, are you, are you able to find that you're able to live your life in accord with the direction you actually want to go? Are you organizing your life to meet those needs? Or are those directions unknown? All right, so ask those questions. Maybe during this retreat, sit quietly <laughs> and find that space that presses up inside. For me, often has this sense of, I need something else. Right? A sense of lack inside. Right? Not complete. And that pushes me in a particular direction. What is it that I could do that would fulfill that, that would fill up that lack, that would complete that incompletion? When my son, my first child, was born, He's about two weeks old, and I held him in my arms as I walked around the house. He was on my shoulder. And I was so peaceful and happy. And he's pressed against my chest. And you know, in my practice, that space of lack in me is right there in my chest, in my solar plexus. And if I fall into that, I want to collapse. This is like the... I just... Just get me out of the world, kind of feeling if I really go into that void and fear that's there. So having him there pressed against me, I was feeling so happy, so content, and so fulfilled. And I set him back a little bit, and I just looked at his face, even though he was sleeping. And I said, my hands are interfering <laughs> I said you complete me yeah you complete me yeah you got it when I had those I saw those words that little bit of mindfulness was hanging out in the corner and 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 caught you know saw my response you complete me and I my reaction inside was one oh I was very surprised. I don't want to say horrified, <laughs> but there was a dimension of it that was like that was like, "Oh my gosh, this has got to be an ancestral transmission." Because, <laughs> like, I, I felt I was instantly aware that that's a tremendous burden to place on a little baby. <laughs> right? But it was so true, you know. 
when I was in a space of not feeling well, and in that moment, I didn't feel, I was tired out, I was really exhausted. I I wasn't very well. And holding him made me feel well. It was a deep, deep comfort. And that came out in that manifestation in that moment. But at the same time, my mindfulness and my practice were there and said, are you sure you want that to be your relationship with your son? Where you're needy and you need him to complete you. Right? And so in that moment, I practiced to come home to myself and to go into that place in me that was tired, that ached, was alone, right? And to be there for myself. My seed of suffering was there quietly sitting there and I wasn't paying any attention to it, right? And he in his sleepy beauty pointed it out to me. (laughs) And so I went, I said, okay, I know how to do this. I know how to breathe with my suffering. I know how to get into my heart and open it and have kindness and understanding and compassion for myself. And I did that and I felt my whole energy open up and fulfill from the inside. And then I sort of asked him, I said, can I amend that last statement? (laughs) You know, I let that be the awareness that yes, there are conditions in my life like you that can help me to feel fulfilled, but that I also know how to do this in my own heart, how to summon up the seeds of understanding and compassion and presence that I need, right? They're in there. They're in that soil of consciousness. Everyone has that possibility. You just have to learn to wake it up. I practiced in that moment to wake it up. And and they'd be like, this is what I really want us to be doing in our life together, right? I want you to know how to do this, right? How to fulfill yourself like that. And boy, you know, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to tell you. I'll just have to bring you on retreat out in Montana a bunch. (laughs) But then he got busy and he wants to go somewhere else. (laughs) But you see the experience there of being deeply in touch with yourself, knowing what you want to do in your life, right? And that's what I want to do. I want to be able to be stable, be free, and offer energy of stability and freedom to the world in that moment to my son, right? And because that's my volition, I have learned to practice in accord with that. And these things feed me. They feed me a lot. Now, if I go and I open myself up to a whole bunch of worldly entertainment and rich, exciting foods and experiences, I run the risk of not taking care of myself in the way that I need and instead just piling on a whole bunch of pleasure and being able to forget about the way I feel because there's all this adrenaline and all these great shows to watch on Netflix. you know, And you kind of can get lost in all of that and not take care of myself, that doesn't support my desire, my aspiration, my volition. That takes me in a different direction. And so there's this practice of mindful consumption that can support our aspirations, our desires in our life. 
Tomorrow we'll talk about the fourth part of consumption, which is consciousness itself. But uh, I only wanted to go through those three today. <laughs> There's something really interesting about the way that uh, our practice is shaped. Um, when you look into any one of the teachings, you can find the presence of all the others. Right? The interbeing, the non-separation of the different Dharma doors. It's very beautiful. Tonight there's going to be a presentation of the five mindfulness trainings. And the five mindfulness trainings express a lot of this kind of practice. Especially in the second and the fifth one. Actually in all of them. But really explicitly in the second and fifth where it talks about happiness and, and where happiness comes from and fulfillment and connecting with life deeply and the give and take in the world, generosity and oppression and things like that. Right? And in the fifth one, directly about mindful consumption, where these four practices are named, food, sense, impression, volition, and consciousness. Each of the mindfulness trainings starts with a sentence something like this. Aware of the suffering which is brought about by such and such a behavior, I am determined to cultivate a kind of well-being in such and such a way. The Four Noble Truths. Each mindfulness training starts with the Four Noble Truths. Remember last night, these two arms of our practice that we sculpt our life with. And the one is the awareness of what is going well, right? The joy and the happiness and how we build that. And the other is when there is suffering and the possibility of suffering, where it comes from and how to take care of it, right? Aware of the suffering caused by the roots of suffering, Right? Suffering and the roots of suffering, the first two truths. I am determined to cultivate a kind of well-being by doing such and such well-being and the path to it. Right? Each one of those trainings is a full picture of the practice, just looking at one part of our lives. Right? And each one is so deep and so rich that it's very difficult to attain them, almost impossible to do them well, even. We can always just see them out in front of us and move towards them. But that's a beautiful thing about this practice. And these examples of practice, they are like a light. And we say it's like the North Star. And some of us have probably practiced, a few of us maybe have practiced celestial navigation. It's really cool when you, you use the, the stars in the night sky to navigate, to go in one direction or another. And oftentimes, especially in the northern hemisphere, we, we look to the North Star because the North Star doesn't move a whole lot. It's pretty easy to find, right? We look to the North Star, we know it's in the direction of north. That doesn't mean we're going to the North Star. It doesn't mean we even have to go north. But because we can see the North Star, we know what any other direction is. And the mindfulness trainings are like that when you can see the suffering, right? understand where it comes from, see the possibility of well-being and how you might build that, 
you can go in a direction, right? You can see which way to go. Uh, and that's our practice. Thank you, everyone. Mm-hmm.